Commentators. I'm Brian Costello. I'm Jim DeSanto. And I'm Katie DeSanto. We're just going to go yes. straight with it tonight. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like it. Very yeah. simple. And today we're looking at the Spike Lee 1989 AFI Top 100 Criterion Collection Selection. <laughs> awesome, awesome movie. Do the right thing. But first, as always, we ask the most pressing question of every episode. What are we drinking this episode? What does everybody have? I have what uh, the whiskey I purchased in Boston. Hmm. And uh, well, actually, I purchased, but Brian also purchased me a bottle because mm-hmm. he's it's just a great I, guy. He's, he's yeah, just a he's, stand-up guy. He's a really good guy. Um, um, we it were is, in Boston last weekend. And we were. We were it is together. It is. Uh, yes. And there may be a lost episode. We'll mm. see. I'm going to listen. I listened to a little bit and I'm like, I don't know if we want to post this, but All right. we'll see. Not around the audio. <laughs> it's more around us. Yeah. It was a low energy <laughs> we were, we were, conversation. It took us a long time to get going. We were um, I thought there was some good stuff in that. There probably is. There probably we might is. have some clips. Uh, but this is Battle Cry from Sons of Liberty. It is a really interesting whiskey that is distilled from a Belgian uh, ale that they make. Mm. That's quite lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband has made me my favorite apple cider drink. How about them apples? And it's delicious. Ah, Cinnamony. Yes. And I got a vanilla. number. Like apples? I think we should just call it I got a number. No. I think it's got to have apple in it. <laughs> then it, it, Okay. How about you like apples? It's on the- you like apples? It has to have a I question mark. A, I eat an apple a day. <laughs> Good job, Brian. Good job, Brian. True fact. Uh, <laughs> I am attempting to right a wrong. There is not much wrong about this film, but its treatment of Miller <laughs> Light is completely inappropriate. Now, levels. you have to keep in mind, that's only one character's opinion. It's true, I, I, but yes, he is a revered true. character. He, he is. is. So, so I, mm-hmm. I so I will be having that. that. Um, I feel like you, we could call you the mayor, Brian. No, no. No, the mayor of what? The mayor. No, we are not going to call him the mayor. We are going to call him the mayor. <laughs> the mayor. Thank you. Of uh, uh, Easton. Of of. The mayor of Easton. Mayor. Yeah. Yeah. You could definitely be the mayor of Scranton, but it feels like that time has passed. So. Mm. Yes. Easton okay. seems like it could use you. Oh, yes. Uh, I I don't think I'd be a very good mayor. Oh, you'd be a great mayor. Um, so last week we were together for Booksmart, at, mm-hmm. as we have yeah. mentioned. Uh, and one might have thought we were all hungover mm-hmm. not. Um, during the recording of it Mm-mm. at the beginning, in particular, kind of low energy. Yeah, um, I think no we're reflection. scared of waking the baby. Maybe yeah. no reflection on the movie itself. No. Mm-mm. Which we loved, and actually, no, Katie hated um, it. I didn't hate it. I didn't yes, hate it. It did not I felt come like across I, as the no, fact that you love the movie. I know, I know. I realized that I had I had small issues with the movie that I feel like I allowed myself to fixate on. I did. I really liked the movie. Like I will rewatch that movie and enjoy every minute of it. I liked it. Okay. All right. I liked it. I actually, I, I, I'm looking forward to listening to it because I think that uh, we were a little tired, but I thought yes. that there, it really started moving the second half. Yeah, of yeah, the yeah. Episode. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So We've already I started listened. quoting the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So there's been I think a lot of I think talk um, yeah. online this week about that movie because a lot mm. more people are doing what we did, which is now with its streaming, Catching discovering out, yeah. it. People are writing articles mm-hmm. on it. The mm-hmm. word of mouth. 
uh, is spreading it as a film, which is the same. It didn't get a bigger maybe reception. Yeah, maybe it'll have like an office space type life. I, I was going to say that, that it, I think it is one of those films like an office space that mm-hmm. might continue to grow over the years. Mm-hmm. And who knows? Maybe we'll have to do a, a, a repeat episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure Jim will work his audio magic mm-hmm. and it's going to be, be, be possible. It's very it'll possible. Be great. I'll we'll just replace this. I'm going to replace the beginning of our podcast with an exciting other podcast. <laughs> and then we'll just, the we'll just crossfade them. <laughs> I, think, I think that your um, <clears throat> negativity. Yeah, I don't think that you are. I think you're selling a short a little bit. Okay. It's like when you talk about how Katie and I despise it. Oh, yeah. and don't, no such no such thing. Don't occurred. sell that yourself short. You're that a tremendous slouch. <laughs> <laughs> no such thing occurred. Uh, OK, now it is time to move on to this week's film chosen by katie yeah. spike lee's do the right thing and mm-hmm. it's time for the rundown yeah. I, i'll be honest we have more facts back and i remembered the button it's amazing tonight on the majors like there's a little extra no. tonight no no you're no. just always you, not paying attention yeah, you usually just talk over <laughs> you're wondering it, who so. the characters names are at this oh, point. Yeah. <laughs> i was i was running through my news anchor names hmm. so uh, um uh, a famous news anchor died today I, I wanted to use his name but then i couldn't think of it who died jim lair jim lair jim lair tonight's for you uh <laughs> this is a really difficult movie to give a rundown on so we're just gonna keep this one simple so Mookie is a young black man living in New York City in the 1980s, just trying to get paid from his pizza job at Sal's famous pizzeria. 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 Um, but it is hot in all of the ways. There is a heat wave. The tensions between cultures are high. And the struggle is real for Mookie. So this takes place in the course of one day, a day and a few hours. A yep. mm-hmm. um, little snapshot of life on kind of the, the day that the top blows off in one neighborhood in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. I think that's, uh, that's about it for the rundown. That is like a legitimate rundown yeah. 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 of the film. I did, yeah. I mean, you the can't really do like a rhyming. We've had yet. Yeah. yeah. Who is in it? Just the facts. Everyone is in. Everyone is in this movie. Everyone yeah, is, is in this movie. I mean, and it's a lot re- of people to start who, running through is yeah. silly. A lot of people who hadn't done a lot of stuff. Yeah. You know, this is early, early stuff. Can I tell you my favorites stuff. though? Like my favorite surprise because I hadn't seen this before. Ozzy Davis and Ruby D are in this movie. Just like ridiculous that they're in this movie so then so I, I did a deep dive you, on them yeah why don't you give because, everyone like, a little rundown I, on so them i knew their names as actors and actresses and i did not i knew that they were married like i okay. i was like i think that they're they were married right yeah um turns out you know like these folks grew up in the the middle of the civil rights movement ozzy davis gave malcolm x's eulogy the two of them are known as like figureheads of the civil rights movement as well as theater and screen actors. They appeared in over 50 movies together. I had no idea. I didn't know that they had acted that that many times together. Right. 50 movies. Um, but I, I loved their roles in this movie in particular. Yeah, so they were great. That, they were my favorites. So for those following along, they played the mayor and sister, mother, sister, mother, sister, mother, sister. Yes. sister. 
Mother, sister. Mother, sister. Yeah. Yes, sister, mother. Yes. So kind of I, like the one of those the figureheads in different ways, right? Like yeah, the patriarch and the matriarch yeah, on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really. So one is revered and one is kind of looked down upon. By some. By some. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, valued by others. Yeah. Uh, so what was the this is Katie's choice for the month. Mm -hmm. What was the desire for this film now? This, I mean, coming up on, you know, 30 years after its release this past, yeah. you know, year. So this is a movie that I feel like I have just heard talked about uh, so many times over the years. It's always been on my list of, you know, m movies I need to see. And I, and I just haven't. And uh, when we've been talking about the past few months, like, movies we'd like to watch on the show. This was one for me. Um, and, you know, I, I knew that it was kind of like the first big movie for Spike Lee. Um, and I'm always interested in that, like a like the breakthrough work. You know, what's the, the thing that got somebody noticed? You know, the first book, the first movie, first album. Um, yeah, so I, I just really wanted to see this one. It, he, and right off the bat, you meet his character. He, he stars in the, in the movie. And yeah, I had I had honestly I hadn't seen this in a really long time. I had forgotten, you know, in my mind, I always think of him as the director, writer of this film. Mm -hmm. I always forget, I think, that he was the seminal star of it yeah. as well and did that much as much acting as he did in it. Yeah, yeah and he, he's really good. He's and but he does look like he's 12 years old in this movie. Yeah. It yes. is incredible that he did this movie at the age he was how I mean, old it, was he um oh i didn't even yeah. check because i'm wondering to me I, i'm wondering he if he was older than he was playing right like was he 20 29 i could be way off i feel on that. like mookie is not supposed to be 29 no he had a few other films you know made yes, features we were looking it up. so school this. days was before this i feel like 29 is a, a good guess Bry. Maybe because he went to film school. He did. So yeah. I feel like twenty nine is that's you know, probably. That, probably I, I, I think, he's I think he was playing. Younger? I do think he was probably talk, playing too. younger <laughs> than he was. I think so too. Uh, school Days is a good one too. By the way, you know, so how one I haven't old? Seen in a long. How old do you think Mookie's supposed to be? Mid twenties. So I think I early twenties. Yeah, I don't think he's do even you supposed think to be early because okay. I, I think he's supposed to be a young father. Twenty five I mean, years old. He's supposed to be. Mookie's supposed to be twenty five. Yeah. Okay. How yeah. old was he when he when he? Uh, I'm trying did to. It. I'm trying to do the math. He was My born in fifty seven. Fifty seven. So, All right. So he would have been thirty two. Seven. Oh, at the time. I'm so sorry. I was yeah. doing the house. He would have been thirty two at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, good guess, yeah. Wow. Good. He oh, looks close. He looks like incredible. He, he could be 18. Well, he yeah. still does, though. Yeah, I he feel still like looks he's really still. If you see and him, he looks great. Same with Samuel L. Jackson, who is also oh, this is yeah. one so of the wait. first. So, I'm so sorry. <clears throat> Go ahead. No, I was just going to say. So that means Spike Lee is in his 60s, and I can't even process that. Yeah, yeah. yeah and well, he doesn't look. He's fantastic. Not. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, and he uh, plays a young 20 very well in this movie. Like, oh, yeah. I, there are parts where I, I was wondering, like, because I, you know, I've seen Spike Lee interviewed, and I've seen him, um, you know, talk. You know, I've seen him talk and speak. Uh, he's clearly not playing himself. Like this is, this is like a fully realized character, and it might have been closer to his younger self, but he is not. This character is not as smart and as bright as Spike Lee. 
in so it, it wasn't one of those situations where it was just like a director inserting himself in a film mm -hmm. uh, that he couldn't act in because I think he played and the he, character and, very well. Yeah, yeah, and he plays it he's, much better than Quentin. I was just going to say his it. character <laughs> yep. in yeah. Pulp Fiction. Uh -huh. um, yeah. uh, yes, and, and that's an interesting that's an interesting point considering there are white actors in this film using the n-word um not in a quentin tarantino way very different um, very different for the purpose of the character in a vital correct. way yep. correct yep absolutely and not I, not I, not not trying to prove anything no it was no i completely agree i also liked his performance in the sense as the writer that he didn't make the character as I think informed as Spike Lee, the director, right, and writer, because I don't think the film works as well if that's the central character <laughs> of the film. Yeah, and I also think he did a really good job of balancing like that, that idea of like personal relationships and with people, and then like this higher level political social sociological kind of conflict that you might have with the same person right like his relationship with sal is so complicated <laughs> and so complex that even in the end when after the climax of the movie and and they seem to have turned on each other there's this like awkward moment of understanding between them um that is just so nuanced and like it's there's a depth there that is that is not captured in other movies that are sort of dealing with this type of tension, this racial tension. It's rare, I think, to find it. Yeah, and I, I often wonder with this film and, and the balancing of it <laughs> is that it obviously deals with racial tension, but it maybe doesn't surround it around one singular event. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which allows it to be more nuanced, you know, where there's not a, I want to say big bad, you know, where it's a character that is, you know, the protagonist is an African-American and mm -hmm. the, antagonist is a clan member or so you know right, where right, it's right, right. where it's so divided where there's the complexity of characters that yep. it allows you to deal with racism in a real way mm -hmm. and the nuances of racism and by the way the racism of um all the characters yeah. well he has the that perception of all the characters yeah towards people who are different to them yeah. is really complex. Yeah, he does a really good job of balancing these this idea of like um this real true um construct that he's observed and also bringing his like whimsical experience of his neighborhood to mm -hmm. the screen. Um and it does balance it. One of the things I I saw was Roger Ebert said that while this movie isn't really funny I mean, there are funny parts, but it is a fun movie. It is engaging to watch, and it is actually fun to hang out with these characters yeah. and follow them on their journey basically till the end. Um, and I think that's sort of the magic of this movie is what it is what it's able to accomplish there.
Yeah, so, you know, this movie doesn't have resolution, right? So you're, you're left with angst at the end. It, does, it doesn't end in a satisfying way, right? right? Um, you're left with a lot of questions. And I think that that's always the challenge um, with movies that deal with various time, various types of oppression, but specifically with issues of race in America. Um, you, you can't tie it up. There, there is no, there is no tying it up, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think one of the, you know, gifts of this movie is that the end prompts dialogue among the people that watch it because you aren't sure who am I supposed to, who am I supposed to like? Who, who am I supposed to feel good about? As Brian said, there's no big bad. Yeah. There's no one for me to say like, well, clearly that's the bad guy. Like, clearly those are the people that are doing the wrong things. And these are the people that are doing the right things. Right. It's, it's not, it's, it's not, not like that. that. That Right. And, and the title of the movie is basically telling you to focus on the choices each individual character makes, not the character. Yes. Because even <clears throat> in that, there's like murky water. Right. Because right. you, have you start evaluating like, so where, what, like at what point did right. things go wrong? Right. At what point did they like leave the path? <laughs> right. And, and make a bad choice. Right. Um, and even th it's, it's not always clear. And I think that that gets into like true human psychology and, you know, narrative really well, really beautifully yeah. that you feel like you're watching fully human characters in a fully human story. Yeah. And I will say like outwardly, the only really the, the person that is, well, I won't count the cops cause we don't really, they're not really characters. They're not an, yeah. I don't know. <clears throat> there's enough of them. Right. To... But John Turturro's Pino is the only one who is sort of just a, just a, a scumbag mm -hmm. like to, to the nth degree. Yeah. But do you know what? I even found or, but he's immature. Like, that's yes. the other thing is like, yes. yeah. But I think his character to me was intriguing that there's nothing likable about him. But what I thought Spike Lee did brilliantly with the writing of that character is that he highlighted, you know, how many people are ignorant in that way solely out of a desire or of because how other people perceive them. Mm -hmm. right. So that sequence right. with Danny Aiello and yeah. John Turturro, which I thought was beautifully done in, in one take for so long, is this idea is like, you know what my friends say about it? It's all these other people. It's this idea that the cultural influence of other people saying that to him mm -hmm. impacted him more than the direct relationships he could have formed with the people he was actually interacting with at that time. Right. Because my perception of that is like Sal and those kids, they are interacting and the other son are interacting with Mookie and those people. And, you know, for all of Sal's faults, you know, I think at points did genuinely seem to love being there you know, and having that and, and whatever the role he played in that community. And there's certainly issues with him, but he understood that. And then John Turturro's character should have been able to have put those personal relationships 
above what people who probably had no interactions with African-Americans and he's unable to do that. And I think that's <laughs> fairly common still 30 mm -hmm. years oh, later yeah, in absolutely. society that people are influenced by other people's perceptions over their own personal experiences. And I thought that character in that sense was a really intriguing one played brilliantly by John Turturro. I yeah. thought mm -hmm. he was really good in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought he was great. Who is who is the other brother? I felt like I recognized him. He's in him, a lot of stuff. Yeah, but oh, I couldn't like. A, yeah, he is. He is. A, he's in a ton he of stuff. He never became like the actor that that the others did. But mm -hmm. no, but he was a great character actor yeah. in a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you I thought he know, was great I, in this. Yeah. 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 I mean, but he would do stuff. I'm, Homicide. I believe he was on. Law oh my and god! Order, a bunch of them. You know. Yeah. A bunch yeah. of these guys yeah. ended up on Homicide, Law and Order, Chicago Heat, The Wire. Yeah. That's yeah. that whole East Coast, you know, Spike Lee was casting from that pool of people. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them are stage actors, mm -hmm. you know, which is what Law and Order and The, you know, the Wire. So that's and interesting. So, was Jim, about. Yeah. do you want to speak to that? Yeah. What you said about. <clears throat> uh, by the way, the one thing you will recognize the brother from more than anything. Yes. Is he is the guy that takes the Ferrari <clears throat> in Ferris Bueller's Day Off yes. and drives it around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's the. the uh, the garage attendant. So, oh um, God, I didn't even think about that. But I just always remember that. that shot of them coming up over the hill in slow mo and their hair so like, like the, the flying. flying. Yes, yeah. so good. Um, so the one thing that I that I noticed about this movie that I really liked is that it it is basically a stage play. Um, it feels and and I don't know whether I'm just like West Side Story so ingrained in like the my my childhood and, and and viewing New York in certain ways, but even like something like Spider-Man Homecoming, there's that there's that feeling of New York where a character wakes up, walks down the street, sees the same people they saw the day before, says the same things to them, does the same things, and you get that feeling here, uh, right out of the gate with Mookie walking down the street and and even even Samuel Jackson, you know, the DJ kind of kind of um setting the tone and and setting the really the setting of of where this this movie is going to take place and there's nothing really in this movie other than like you know the cars here and there and and a few other things that really take it out of feeling like it could be a stage show that was um, ominous but thank you yes well you know i think the intriguing thing that he did so well about New York City here is that it is, you know, the, maybe the most multicultural, largest city in the world. But so much of it, especially at that time, was still confined yeah. to a block. So you're on this one block where it seems like so much can happen and your world is defined by that block. But then it's like, 10 blocks later, you're in Times Square. Right. And I thought he played that so well, especially, you know, from a historical perspective of where New York City and where really all urban areas were in the late 1980s and what, you know, the preceding decades had meant to African-Americans in urban areas and mm -hmm. all the issues that were at play. It is it is timeless in the sense that this is a film that I think you'll always be able to go back and get a real feel 
for what life was like during this time. And I think there's a, a, a true value to that in the way he constructed and paced and structured this film and tying it to a day. And even though it's a day, you get to know what that community was about, mm-hmm. which yeah. is, you know, pretty special. You know, I think for somebody in 50 or 60 or 70 years to watch, you know, as an experience to hopefully at least begin to process what the African-American experience was like, you know, in the late 20th century. And I mean, and the horror for us is that we watched this movie 40, 30 years later uh, and think like um, so much of that is still relevant. Right. I mean, you watch the scene with the police officer and it's like, and that's Eric Gardner all over again. Right. Like the, this is this is still happening in America. Mm-hmm. And so the film, while it encapsulates this specific period in time, is still relevant. Yeah, there's not much in this movie that feels dated. Um, obviously, Besides the clothing. The clothing. The, the, right, like but, the, the period pieces right, of right, it. Right, right, right. Yeah. But, um, the story, yeah, characters. The, the payphone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's, you know, that's, that's yeah, <laughs> there's not much more to say about that. Yeah. Um, well, I th- I think it's truly reflective to a really interesting piece that people don't think about, which is, you know, in the late, tw- really late 20th century, but certainly the beginning of the 21st century, this idea of urban renewal. Um, and we're seeing, you know, urban areas that were neglected really from post-World War II on. Um there has been a huge financial reinvestment in that, but that reinvestment has not necessarily been for the people right. who are represented in this film. No, you're bringing and, back the neighborhoods, but in many cases, that's moving out the people who have founded and, you know, yeah. and, <laughs> been and the heart been the of those neighborhoods. Record, that's yep. been the track record of, you know, quote unquote, urban renewal forever. Yep. If you go, you know, and it's, the context of that, I think, begins to inform you of the anger that you see at the end of the film. Yes. Yeah, that it's is represented me. in. Oh, man. And I think that's difficult for some. I think it's really difficult for some people to understand because the history of those communities yeah. is not something that there's a level of commonality for a lot of people to understand because you're, yep. if you're not there, yeah. you don't necessarily grasp what it is. And, and if the news you get about it is like what I thought, which was very effective at the end, which is, Hey, there was a riot, there was this. And, you know, you know, here's this community, they're burning their own buildings. You know, the level of sympathy Mm-hmm. is not there if you don't understand the context which led to that. Yeah. And I think that's still a huge issue that is not being tackled in yeah. areas that are similar to the setting of this film today. Yeah, what's what's interesting for me is to think about that moment. Um so you have you have all these characters making making choices kind of kind of like to demonstrate their their own sense of power and where they where they feel like they can be strong right and and not feel 
put on by someone else. You know, you have some of the African American patrons of the of the of the pizzeria asking Sal to put put people of color on the wall, on the wall of fame, which is only all the Italians. Which we'll get to that in a minute because something that resonated <laughs> still to this day, we should probably burn that building down. Um, <laughs> but the the all those choices that they make, whether they're right or wrong. And I don't think Spike Lee's telling you whether each individual choice is right or wrong, but you mm -hmm. know that moment in, at the end where Mookie is standing next to Sal and Pino and everyone else is in the street like, hey, they just killed... The, they, Radio Raheem just died. The, the, the police came because of Sal and his, and his sons and that's why Raheem's dead. And they're literally calling to Mookie saying like, Mookie, what... like?" They're almost asking him to do what they think is the right thing, right? And so, like, he's sitting there, and there's that moment where he, I feel like it flips. It goes from that thing I was talking about of, like, this isn't about his personal relationship with Sal anymore. This is about his, his people and their relationship with Sal's people and what they represent, right? And we've been hearing... The backdrop of Public Enemy, the whole movie, that is not an accident that Fight the Power is basically the soundtrack to this movie. And a switch flips and Mookie goes and grabs the trash can and throws it through the window. And it's not, it is that to me, it's that moment when his personal relationship with Sal is less important than this, than the significance of what he needs to do for his neighborhood. Well, at least that's what he thinks. I, I'm not, yes. and I don't know that Spike Lee is telling us he did the. I would, I would say that he, Spike Lee's probably on Mookie's side in saying that he did the right thing, um, but I don't think he outwardly says that, and I think that's a really smart choice. Well, I, yeah, I agree with you. I think that following up the like the end conversation between Mookie and Sal is really interesting in the way that they have this kind of like unspoken conversation about right. what happened, you know? Well, well um, and before you, because I want you to continue mm -hmm. that, but prior to that, there's the conversation with Sal where Sal basically says, hey, Mookie, you'll, you'll always have a place here. Mm -hmm. You're like a son to me. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and, and that, to me, that wasn't like, that wasn't... Um, he fake. wasn't him. It wasn't, it wasn't fake. No, it was, it was genuine. And uh, yeah, I, yeah, so like to well, inform that conversation that you're talking about, like right. And I think that in that conversation, you see that anger, the, the anger that they have at each other, but that there is still that depth of relationship where it feels like, you know, part of me thought like, is Mookie gonna like pick up a broom and start helping Sal like sweep the right. space, right? Like that it felt like that was as likely to happen as him walking away and spending the day with his son. Like even that in saying to Sal, I'm gonna go spend time with my son, it seemed a rebuilding of, or like a, a coming back to like this, like this is right. our relationship. But then at the end, you know, the 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 final scene before the end credits is, a quote from Martin Luther King and a quote from Martin, uh, from Malcolm X. And I felt like they were so perfectly chosen and really bookended the film in terms of, you know, talking about the role of violence and nonviolence in, mm -hmm. you know, in handling 
issues of oppression, specifically racism. Um, and I agree with you. I don't know if Spike Lee is necessarily saying like what Mookie did was the right thing. I don't I don't think that's the point of that final scene. I think it's more to highlight like the level of so for me it was Mookie and and mother sister, right? Where you had these two kind of like calm characters and she screams burn it down. Um, mm -hmm. and so to me, you have these characters who maybe are like your barometers, your like moral compass throughout who seem to be like peacemakers throughout the film. And so you see like, it's like that, that level of frustration, that level of like just being put down through their whole lives. Like it, like they cannot, over, they can't just overcome that and be like, let's all settle down folks. Right. Let's all like, just. You know, well, and, simmer and down. the mayor tries to get them to do that. Right. Right. Which in his time was probably a survival tactic. Sure. Right. Like, so it's interesting. Um, the other the other conversation I really appreciated that he that Spike Lee included. And it, it is the conversation. It's the conversation with John Turturro and Danny Aiello again, but it's between Sal and Pino. But it's the other part where where Sal's really explaining why he loves that pizzeria, that he's proud that, that the folks in the neighborhood have grown up eating his food. And I think that's super important for the emotional, like resonance of the movie, right? Like again, the, there is a moment where all the decisions that people make flip from being personal to, cultural like like they're not burning down and destroying sal's pizzeria because it's sal's they're doing it because of all the things we've already talked about right, right? it's a representation right. it's right it, it represents well, in particular yeah. yeah in particular of new york city you know if you know the history of new york city in particular even to burning down a building you know, uh, there's a great um, documentary PBS has on uh, called Decade of Fire, and it's about the South Bronx and how mm -hmm. the South Bronx was literally being burned to the ground in the 1970s. And Puerto Rican and African-Americans were being displaced. And most of these fires historically now were being set on purpose for insurance reasons and even get that line at the end where Mookie's like, you know, you know, you're going to get the insurance money. So and, and I don't know if that was him talking about this history, but there were like very explicit insurance deals that were set up in New York City during the preceding decades, which were advantageous to white landlords mm -hmm. to burn down these buildings. In well, these but and, I, I mean, think the history so goes back that, so much farther than that, too, though, Bri, right? Like when we think about well, Right, well, the use of to, right, like I mean, churches. Yeah, but I'm just saying, homes, in particular, yeah, oh yeah, just in particular in New York, this was, you know, for an African American, they would have been very attached to this idea of their neighborhoods on fire. Yeah, and, I, yeah. You know, well, what was associated. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that. that conversation really does put a bookend on the movie with Mookie and and um, Sal. Is that Sal doesn't care about the money. He he, and I, I believe everything he's saying, right? He's just heartbroken that he couldn't, that he tried to make this work 
and he felt like the other that like his customers tried to make it work. They were supporting him. They were and to like their to all the bad choices that they made, they couldn't they couldn't like they couldn't make it work. So here's it was my a question. fail. It was a failure, right? So when in the end. Sal says to them, "Do what you have to do," is he resign? Is that like his resigning himself to like? Well, so I over? thought. I thought at that point that was that he thought they were, they were going to descend on him and his sons, mm-hmm. right? That they were going to be the subject of the violence, mm-hmm. and that it almost broke him more that it was his his space. That yeah. was assaulted. And well, it was his him. his identity. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His legacy. Yeah, yeah. It's everything he was. He basically, you don't see anything else in this movie. He doesn't. He does not show pride in his sons. No, at all <laughs> in this film. So, no, no fault of his own. Well, they're they're kind. They're kind yeah, well, of he does want to name it. He does go through that whole thing about naming it at the end. But Sal that's that's sons. more about the space, though, too. I think. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. And, and you can see the look on John Turturro's face. He's like, I don't want anything to do with this. Well, yeah, he doesn't want anything to do with that. Yeah. yeah. I also think the the dynamic of it, again, for people who didn't live in and around it, is it, the film speaks to different people in different ways. Yeah. Like for somebody um, like DeMayer and, you know, Ruby D's character, who have grown up in New York City and post-World War II New York City in particular, there was a constant devaluing of their community, of Mm. their neighborhoods. By the way, neighborhoods that were very multiracial, you know, if you went to the Bronx, for example, we're extremely multiracial with Irish and Italians and Puerto Ricans and African-Americans. And that diversity was stolen from them by, you know, the power of that time, namely the vile fool that is Robert Moses, who I rant about constantly, who starts plowing freeways through it. And, you know, the federal government who starts supporting the building of suburbs, which, you know, and not allowing minorities to purchase into those homes or having the opportunity. And they created this atmosphere, this disenfranchisement, I guess, of this community. And the byproduct of it is this. So this idea that you're right, it's not Sal, who I think by and large is not a bad person and you know but i think but he's part of in whatever small way that is the representation for them the closest representation for them of what they have been up against for decades because they can't do that to the police right that's not an option for them and and here's why i feel like this movie is still so important today because still today we get so hung up on this idea of what is racist yes. and what isn't, who is racist Everybody and who is. is. That's it. It's and not so, binary. Like, yeah, yeah. Even Sal. Yeah. It, like, so, right? so saying, like, the, yes, yeah. everyone, every character everyone, in this film. 100%, yeah. everyone, right? Like it is in the, well, the he, so bones we of everyone. We haven't talked about that scene, but there's this, 
there's a scene in this movie where he basically Spike Lee basically um has one person from each mm-hmm. race sl- mm-hmm. slash ethnic group just take 30 seconds to spout awful racial slurs at one of the other groups uh, but like look at the camera like straight at the, the camera right yes. like break the fourth wall it's at not a, a Dutch conversation angle. anymore it's yes. just yeah so what Film do you think so stuff. what's your interpretation of that like what what's i think that's supposed to be i think spike lee's trying to get get you to understand that like again like you're saying racism isn't is in a spectrum where like you are a, there's like a door and once once you do something racist you walk through that door and you're you are a racist right like there are racist behaviors right? sure and so like um yeah I, I think that scene is to show that like he is keenly aware of that he wanted to make sure that everyone knew where he stood on racism and where where he thinks it exists. So I I think that it's so I think it's almost like a peek inside of the mind of like it, you know you know part of the nefarious issue of racism is that so much of it is subconscious, yes. right? And so this notion of like these are all of the things swirling around inside. These are all of the words that we've heard. And then how does it feel to have a character look at you as the audience and spout uh, all of those words at you? Yep. You know, one of those characters, like one of some of those words are going to land. Some of those words are you're going to feel it. Yeah. And not everybody's had that experience of hearing those words spoken out loud and feeling like they're receiving them. Right. And I feel like you get a chance there to like sit in that emotion, like to, to feel yeah. like what if that was your reality and you had people and because throwing of, those words at you. Right. And because of the way he shot it with those angles, it does make it seem like it's, it's that character's subconscious, like yes. cracking through yes, and just like on. Yeah. It's almost like primitive reaction, not a thoughtful, obviously, conversation. And he does that throughout the movie. And, and that happens. So it's interesting. I wonder if he's setting, he's clearly setting that example for when he uses similar camera tactics later in the movie to show you how people are reacting. Like Sal, when Sal finally loses Crap, it yes. and hits, the, hits yes. the radio, it's the same idea. Yes. And also Rosie Perez's mom. Yes. When Mookie finally shows up and she goes off on him in the kitchen when he's in the freezer, you don't know half of the words that she's saying, but you know she is cursing him out right. in every way that she knows how. Right. Um, and so, yeah, these moments were like, it's just like they're, they flip, yeah. right? Yeah. And then all of, the, all of the hatred comes out in that language. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's so it's so well done. It sits so horribly like in your soul, but yeah. it's so necessary. Yeah. You gotta well, you, I got, you gotta I, see I, it. You gotta do yeah, it. Yeah, and I think it also tackles an issue that I think's intriguing in the sense that I wanna see how I wanna say this. You know, at the end, like we've talked about, so they the anger I think or the resentment towards 
the pizzeria make sense when you understand what was going on there. In particular to me, and I don't know this was Spike Lee's intention of it, but it was just my thought process of having taught history that the idea of the what I would deem to be the strongest African-American male in this story. You know, the one who everybody either respected or was scared of Radio Rahim, all Mm -hmm. this type of stuff. The fact that he was not invincible and that the powers that be were able to kill him when he seemed so invincible within that block, I think highlights the, the, the fear or the anger that would be associated with reacting in the way they did. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that that's something that a lot of people can understand because even though every character and, and the idea of there, there is maybe racist ideas or culturally insensitive ideas are there. The problem is that if you don't have a position of power, that racism isn't going to affect that person who is in position of a higher degree of power. Right. So it doesn't almost matter, you know, and when, when we're looking at right. it, it doesn't matter if they feel if somebody who's in a position of less power, you know, is maybe sexist or racist yeah. or because that power, they don't have the power to affect or impose that yeah, like, viewpoint upon. People. Like I, and I, I thought that was an interesting impact that hit me with during that yeah it's different like like you know one of the characters is is you know saying a bunch of derogatory things about italians and yeah and or is there an irish one i can't remember i don't think there was i don't think there was but like either way those those words are not going to land on me in the same way it would an african-american person or a person of color in in any any way because those words and those things have never been used to to you know keep me in in a place of of less privilege so like it, it's not and and i think yeah i, I don't know that's definitely part of this it, it fits into this movie in a really interesting way and <clears throat> again i'm still fascinated that like we could watch this movie and still feel like that it is it is a really fun movie and it does things it does things outside of the the heaviness of the racism that are that I think are just incredible like the the radio station i think that that harkens back to a day that doesn't really exist anymore like a dj that has that is the entertainment as much as the songs that you're hearing and the way he he shows summer heat in the on the east coast in the in the 80s i grew up in a place in you know basically a super you know low income white neighborhood of row homes where no one had air conditioning and this that sitting laying in the bed like sweating with the box fan was like and immediately called back to my bedroom when i was like you know, nine or whatever. Um, I would have been in that bedroom when this movie came out. So um, it had wood paneling. It was dark. And <laughs> I had a box fan in the window that pointed yeah. out to the back alley. Um, well, I felt the heat. Yes. You almost that like, that's how good the direction yes. of this film is. You felt things 
Like you felt that you were in that and you felt it, the heat rising as the day went on, which I think is just, uh, it's really so well done. And I do have to bring up my favorite funny part of the movie is when uh, Sweet Dick Willie, who the, the three guys on the, on the corner are hilarious. He breaks the fourth wall at one point to look at the camera and say that it is never too hot to fuck. <laughs> he stares directly down the barrel of the camera. And I have to imagine that might have been a mistake that Spike Lee was like, keep it. Or they redid it and and because like the idea of that character looking right down the the camera in passing while he says that is absolutely ridiculous. I was really hoping that we would have seen the guy from the end of Pretty Woman just walking through uh, that neighborhood as well. <laughs> it, you know, it, yeah, it calling out. Well, that's not you, you know, know. One other thing I found really interesting, and just from a sociological perspective, this idea that Sal um is very much con- content with his way of life and and wanting to pass that on to his son and the way that people would have you know an attachment to that of oh wow that's such a great thing and all that type of stuff whereas if you wanted to continue to live in that community on that block i think there would have been a negative connotation in a lot of society of oh you're not going to get up out of that society which maybe really I think hark on what Mookie's life and things, what that was. And I was thinking to myself that so much of this movie is talking about cultural identity and all these types of things. And that we attach to someone who, who lives in these urban communities in these neighborhoods. And if they don't get out of it, that's some kind of blight on them. And we say, Oh, you can do that. But I think of myself and I'm of the same social status. I would say that I grew up in, I was, you know, I didn't break through to another level and I was just lucky enough to be born into a level that was higher than that of poverty. Mm. And the way we attach that and look at some of these characters like, oh, well, that person didn't get up out of poverty. Like they're lazy or they're right. Well, no, they're 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 doing what I would say probably ninety nine point nine percent of the people do, which is they stay t- we tend to stay within those communities right. and we attach it there. And I just thought that the generational look at the different characters there was really interesting that a lot of people, if you had a certain mindset would look at that and look at the older characters and say, Oh, look at these people living on this block and how they are. And those same people, if you had that mindset would look at sound and be like, Oh, look how great it is. He's giving his sons the pizzeria. When in reality, there's not yeah. really a well, his difference sons- there. For for instance, like, and we talked that we we there's a saying that I that I share with Brian that I think is hilarious, and it would apply to South Sons, right? They were born on third base and think they thought they hit a triple, right? Like, yeah. th- it's they're standing on the shoulders of their father, right? Right, and not or, realizing or not even their fathers. They're you know just societally. Of, no, absolutely, of, you're right, of, of right, the, right, right. Of the construct yeah. of the society they live yes, in. Yes, yes, and you know I like think of the wire for example yes. and one of oh, the things God. i lo- but one of the things i loved about this was you know there's really no overt drug use or things like that no. and somebody might say that's not reflective maybe of certain but i liked it because that allows too many people to blame the victim mm-hmm. oh they're on drugs you couldn't be on drugs it, this is just a, a true view of people as they are and communities as they are and it allows us to look at it and really begin to question, like, 
what is the thing here? Because I think we have too many outs. We give too many outs, you know, and the burning of the building at the end, I think, is an example of that. That would be an out for a lot of people. Oh, look at these communities. They're going to burn down their own buildings. And it allows you to ignore or move past why somebody would do that. Mm -hmm. And it it stops somebody from saying, like, I wouldn't go down the street and burn down the pizzeria that's two minutes from my house. I wouldn't do that. Unless the Eagles win. What? Well, yeah, maybe. But but my point is, what would make a person do that? And that's a harder question. And this movie forces you to look at that and ask that question. Yeah. And, and I love that about this movie, that it does make you do that. And it doesn't give you or anybody, if you really come into it with an open mind, an out of why this was done. Yeah. And I enjoy that fact about what Spike Lee was doing with this movie. I agree. So if if you want to read about awful power dynamics in America, just pick up this 1,200-page book that I'm holding up if you're on Facebook, The Power Broker, about the rise and fall of Robert Moses, and talks about all the horrible things that he did to create the environment in New York City that has to be dealt with. He is an appalling human. Uh, unfortunately, it is 1,200 pages. And I wish it could be and by Robert Caro. it was done in it's, pretty much every major city, not just New York. <laughs> yeah, and it's Pulitzer Prize book. But my God, if you want just a case study of power dynamics and call, and by the way, it's it, you know, in the case of New York, it was African-Americans, Puerto Ricans, but in other urban communities, it, there, there were poor whites that were being affected by the same yeah. ideas and the same strategies that Spike Lee is talking about now. Yeah. And well, they did um, throw that little scene in there about the gentrification, which I thought was, was smart as well. And, and he doesn't take it too seriously. He, he kind of makes a joke out of it as well uh, about those people. But um, that's one of my favorite jokes of the whole movie, which is you oh, get the guy great. with the bike who yeah. accidentally runs I over. Gian- By the way, Giancarlo Stanton is bugging out. He played oh, the character so bugging out who, if you don't know him, he was Gus Fring in uh, Breaking Bad. And now he's in the Mandalorian. Um, he plays a also on just, homicide. Also Jim, on homicide. He plays a it. really funny character in this movie who is sort of like the catalyst for the plot. But um, he gets his Air Jordans, which those Jordans that he had were pretty awesome. I actually had that Ooh. was the one pair of Jordans that I Jordans? actually had. I, I never did. had Air Jordans. That was that was it. Never had. That it. was my one my one chance. I was not a Michael Jordan fan. Uh, yeah, I don't. What I was like, I was with Spike Lee. <laughs> I was a Knicks fan. Yeah, that's true. Spike Lee and I sit in courtside. Uh, so uh, he, uh, but then so he he chases down the guy who who messed up his Air Jordans, and it's this white guy going into a building. He's like, "You live in my neighborhood. Who told you you could live in my neighborhood?" And then he's got a Larry Bird uh, basketball jersey yes. on, which is hilarious. And so then they well said at, at the very end, he's, one of the characters at the, at the end of the confrontation, he basically says, well, why don't you go back to Boston? And he says something like, I was born in Brooklyn. And they're all like, ah! they all lose it. And it's like, oh, God, it, it could have been an Eagles. It could have been someone wearing a Cowboys jersey in Philadelphia. Oh, just yeah. as easy. It, was, it just that joke is such a sport. It's such a it's such a uh, it shows his love of sports and 
we all know. I don't know if you know this. Spike Lee is a gigantic Knicks fan, as Brian said. Well, all, yeah, he's, all he's, sports, he's he basically gets on the court in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, he does. And Mookie's obviously wearing sports of paraphernalia throughout the whole film, but uh, yeah, That's I just such, wanted to bring up that one movie. joke. Katie, great yep. choice. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Um, thoroughly enjoyable. Of course, uh, we aren't the only ones. Like we said, it's an AFI top 100 film, the Criterion Collection. I actually got, and I, I have to watch all the bonus material. I haven't got to watch it yet, but so I, good. I will add just as a, a kind of closing, if you want a companion piece that's a little more modern to this, uh, check out Ryan Coogler's um, Fruitvale Station yeah. with Michael B. Jordan. B. Jordan. It's yeah. way heavier. <laughs> Um, I would say, right? Yeah, it's, yes, it's, it's way heavier, uh, but it deals with a lot of the same issues. Um, well, and you guys, uh, and it's a true story. So, yes, but also, you know, the idea of uh, what's the one you got? Just Mercy just came out, which yep. is supposed to be quite good as well, which begins to tackle us. Also, by the way, um, a show Jim and I absolutely loved, which dealt with the issue of race in a really intriguing way. Watchmen mm-hmm. on HBO. If you have not watched it, I, I. And found yeah, what they it, did really good. If you watch well. the first episode of The Watchmen and then do a little research on Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, it's a little bit mind blowing that that's yes. not something that we yeah. learn about. Feel, feel free uh, if you listen grade. to us and want to know about that to email the show and I will send you all the articles and documentaries I've been using with my students to um, highlight things such as this yeah. that have gone unreported uh all right it is time for game of the week and this week's game of the week we are going into the com majors time machine oh does that mean i get to use the other song yes it does here we go I think it's pretty fair to say we probably has never been a Huey Lewis in the new song in a Spike Lee. This is the hard cut right here. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Maybe I'm wrong about that. Uh, Jim, I I have completely failed uh, with my backup computer here, so uh, I can pitch this. Could you maybe read some of the choices we have here uh, from it? All right. So this week on the Commager's Time Machine, we are going back to 1989. a little 10-year-old Brian Costello was not watching Do the Right Thing, which is a whole discussion maybe for another time of films, you know, that we were watching that, you know, this to me is more appropriate for a 10-year-old to watch than Pretty Woman. I'm just going to lay that (laughs) out there, same time period, uh, you know, but societally, I don't think this was being shown to me as much probably as Pretty Woman was. Uh, but nonetheless, here we go. Uh, we are going to pick one TV show, one movie, and one song we would listen to on the radio. If we went back and it's 1989, what are we going in to see uh, in the theater? What are we watching on TV? And what are we listening to music? All right, let's, let's start with the top five money earners in Hollywood. What would we be going to see? Jim, what were they? So for movies, we're going with Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon 2, Great. Rain Man. Be better than Lethal Weapon. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Rain Man, which I think was the Oscar winner, maybe? Yes, it And was. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Rick Moranis Ooh. at maybe his highest point. <laughs> yeah. I miss Rick Moranis. Yeah. 
He's great. Uh, I think they're actually doing an updated version with Josh Gad as the dad. Oh, I'm in on that. I love that yeah, guy. And he's supposed to be one of the kids all grown up now. And they're okay. trying to get Rick Moranis back. I hope that's true. I'd go see that in a second. If that's true. <laughs> uh, same, who wants to go first? You want me to go first to give you guys yeah, a second go ahead, thing? Go ahead. This was very difficult for me because I loved uh, the original the Batman. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. The 80s in general. Um, though this show is making me like the 80s a little less than I used to. Yeah. But I love the 1989 Batman. You love where you were me... in the 80s. Yeah. Yes, you know, as a I, kid. You know, you I, my mom made me a homemade Batman costume. Yes, Patty. Which, which I've was seen amazing. the pictures. It's awesome. Oh, it's a little so tight. In the... It was. Yeah, it was. It was <laughs> no, amazing. Uh, I mean, so I love that film. Of course, it's very difficult for me not to pick a Tom Cruise movie. Mm. Wow. As my favorite, I as was sure that you were going to pick that. Uh, but one of my uh, if it's not my favorite movie, it's number two of my all time favorite movies of all time to watch is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yes. <laughs> I have the poster hanging in my classroom, uh-huh. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, and I, if you said to me that I could only pick five films for people to watch, um, I would pick Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Over so Raiders of the Lost Ark? I would pick it over the Raiders. I, I'm wow. not saying it's a better movie no, I know. Yeah. than it, but I'm just saying that it is my favorite. I uh, suddenly remembered my Charlemagne. Uh, there's just... I. <laughs> I think everything about that movie. May our armies be the birds in the sky, the rocks on the ground. I was going to give you a pop battle take, like Temple of Doom's the best Indiana Jones movie, but I know. I feel like I should go next because I can already feel where this is headed. Yeah. Uh, So, in terms of the movies that I loved in the 80s that I would keep, I have the most memories of watching Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh That was definitely an owned VHS tape in the current household. I saw it originally, I believe, at the drive-in theater, which Ooh. made the impact of yeah. like, the lawnmower scene. Even like all, bigger. Yeah, huge, yeah. huge. So I, I loved that movie. Yeah. I'm, As I'm someone who's obsessed it. with sound, I'm, I'm almost glad that I didn't grow up in the, in the age of the drive-in theater, which you had this little thing yeah. hooked on your window mm. that would give you the... That's actually on my, my checklist for this summer things to do. We have a couple drive-ins by us oh. and they do double features. I really want to go. I've oh, never right. been to a drive-in When the before. DeSantos come to visit this summer. Oh, we yeah. should do that. We yeah. should do it. Honestly, awesome. it's one of my favorite memories as being... Because think of it, like, think of the novelty of it yeah. from a child's perspective. Yeah, yeah. Like, we literally sat on the roof of the car yeah. Like on I, I do, like blankets. Like yeah. when do you I do get have to, to do say that? I'm with Jim though. Anything I see there, I'll have to see in the regular theater because of the sound. Oh, that's but fine. I will You're just there for the experience. But now yes, they probably that's... are playing older movies anyway. Usually they're like replays. Mm. But yeah, that's um, true. Uh, okay. I have of course am taking Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, yes. Um I I was never a huge fan of the original ba- of of Batman. Oh, really? I, no. I liked it, but it's been um, a long time since I've seen it. Honestly, I but. did not love it. Um, I do like Rain Man a lot, but Very good I feel like I didn't see that until much later, probably a couple of years after this. Oh, um, I'd imagine. And That's I not can't remember a kid movie. I can't remember much about Lethal Weapon Two. Not a, yeah, Indiana oh, Jones. I like Lethal Weapon Two. Yeah. I love it. Uh, we, we will be actually, believe it or not, this is one of my film choices for this year. So we will be watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade All right. later this year on the show. All right. All right. Let's turn to the TV front. What do we got? Cosby Show, Roseanne, okay. Cheers, A Different World, Americans, American 
America's, America's funniest, funniest home videos. videos. Home Sorry, video. Brian, reading the typo. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I am no. still yep. taking the Cosby show. Yep. I, I It was a formative piece of my experience growing up and growing up in like strictly white America. I think the Cosby show did such a service for me as a white kid having oh, representation. Oh, for everybody. That's, like, I mean, that's... So that's what I've written on. Right. That. That's yeah, what I thought about true. black families growing up. Yeah. I thought that they had doctors and lawyers for parents. And but I mean, you know what I mean? But I yeah. didn't have the stereotype of, you know, socioeconomic. Yeah. It was that that was the Huxtables. Huxtables were the black family I, that I knew. I'll go next. I. um, While the Cosby show was huge in my house and also my grandparents loved it the one that i have to pick is cheers specifically because i grew up with an aunt who lived in boston i love the red Sox, and i had sam malone's red Sox jacket as a kid i had a red Sox starter jacket that sam malone wore in the bar um and i loved that show all right Awesome. I remember I when it went think, off. Uh, I was probably watching the Cosby show as a 10 year old in 1989. If I went back in time, I would probably watch Cheers, but I'm overly impressed with America's Funniest Home Videos, which is basically the 1989 version of YouTube. Yeah. Oh, yeah sure. Let's just watch yeah, a bunch so, of guys get hit in the nuts. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? It was real. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike true. YouTube, which is staged and people are doing it. Uh, and then finally, what are we playing mm. on the radio? And let me tell you right now, 1989, the top five singles, some special stuff yeah, there. What, what are Look Away by Chicago. My Prerogative by Bobby Brown. Huh? Every Rose Has Its Thorn by Poison. Straight Up by Paula Abdul. And Miss You Much by Janet Jackson. These are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. The great choices. I'm taking I should my just say quickly. Sorry. Uh, yes. Katie, uh, let's hear a clip of Katie's choice. We Ooh! have audio. We have audio. Selection. You yes! picked my prerogative. I love my yes, prerogative. Yes. Katie has my prerogative. Let's hear it. Oh, stuff about me. Punch them. Yeah, that haircut was like. Ah, great song. Uh, I should add that uh, in our group chat with the Pop Addle guys, all five of these songs are going to end up being chosen because Tim picked Paul Abdul and (laughs) Keenan picked Janet Jackson. We don't have those clips. Uh, Jim, who did you have? I picked Every Rose Has Its Thorn. I had had the cassette open up and say ah. Uh, and we're gonna hear a little bit. I'm gonna let it play for a little bit longer because oh, yeah, because oh. it has yours. It has oh, the his, quintessential no no. It has the quintessential hair metal '80s breakdown. Mm. I'll stop it right right Is as it gets that there. why that's yeah. the excuse we're using. And this video is so good. Yeah. Crash shot. I highly recommend YouTubing all these videos. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll stop it here. But the video is basically just them, uh, you know, it's basically a live journal of their tour and the excess. This is like, it's really funny that I feel like we keep going back to this period in time and being like, this, is, this was all bound to end. 
right? Like, yes. like it was like we the are, 1920s. We are this a year and a half away well. from never mind, right? Like this is, yeah. and and same. Like we we talked about uh, Pulp Fiction coming on the heels of something well, like Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman, <laughs> yeah. So, Brian, and, favorite song? Uh, my favorite song, even though Peter Cetera is no longer a member, it's Chicago's Look Away. I'm. I, I just went through like the beginning here because it's just yeah that's it fine. says just so much play. about you yes yeah, just play something. what instrument is that <laughs> this guitar. music video is basically Pretty Woman with James Vanderbeek. It's hard not to priceless. hurt my it's own ears. By the way, I should also add 1989 is the year that a little film called Chances Are is released. That makes sense. so much sense. One of our listeners commented on your amazing ability to include Chances Are in every episode. That uh, conversation. It's yeah. really, yeah, it really will. is impressive. That was impressive. Uh, John Brooks, really and is. I will continue. Let's just go back to this to <laughs> get a palate <laughs> no, cleanser. Yeah. Turn it off. No, play my Turn it off. Which Here it is. Here's the breakdown I was talking about, though. Oh Ready? It's been a while now. I am so glad we got to hear feel that. so much. Don't make- I will get the acoustic off the wall and play this song. <laughs> Jim played this song. Jim plays this song. Does a great job. But the scar... The scar remains. He's trash. Play some play some Yui Lewis. Get us back in the time machine. We gotta go. Why we gotta did they do this to their own selves? Why would they do that? That's how they were trashed on stage. The, yeah, I know, but like it's their own music video. They, Why would that they? was cool back then. Yeah, that's what people did. Uh, all right, time for five wow. questions. Five questions. Uh, Let's do five it. Questions with Katie. You want answers? I want the truth! It makes a man, Mr. Lebowski. What the fuck is the internet? Why'd you drink five whiskey sours, eight whiskey yeah. sours? Eight whiskey sours, not four whiskey sours. <laughs> uh, this week, uh, Katie will be answering the five All questions. Right. Here we go. Yep. I'm going to read them. Okay. Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down? Martin Lawrence films. I was never a big Martin Lawrence fan. I uh, never really got him. One thing I noticed in the, in in this movie is that he's like one step away from playing that little kid that was in the Martin show. Yes, Martin show. Absolutely. I forget the kid's name, but yeah. he had like yeah, snot down his either, face and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, never my person. Absolutely, yeah. so no, true. Not for that me. That must have been part of his stand-up or something, yeah. right? Yeah. It, that would have gotten him. Okay. Would you rather eat New York City pizza or Chicago deep dish pizza? Mm, I am a New York City pizza all the way. Yeah, ma- no I kidding. I love a thin and crispy crust, please. Chicago deep dish I, is not pizza. It's a totally different thing. I am more about yeah, the it's like toppings. It's like a lasagna almost. That, like, yeah. I, I want less bread and more of the other things. Okay. Yes. All right. Love it. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. The best borough in New York City is? Queens. Ooh. Yeah, it's Shout the borough. Shout out to Tom Gibbons. It is. It's the it's the borough I have the most experience with, just sort of like hanging out in, mm. walking around, and I always loved that it felt even in the two thousands, just like a working class neighborhood. You know, like it. I mean, you just felt that Kevin Smith was living. I did feel that. Not Kevin I Smith, did, uh, but Kevin, before uh, he got famous. What's his name? King of Queens. Oh, Kevin James. Oh, yeah. Kevin James. Yes. Also, living. home of the. Worst baseball team in history, the New York Mets, which yeah. I, well, I don't know if that's the worst in history. 
They're they're one of only two two teams to fire their coach before he coached a game. <laughs> I thought that was a good move. By yeah, him. I did too. All right, deep thoughts. Mm-hmm. Oh no, no, sorry. Favorite mm-hmm. your uh, favorite city to visit in the summer. If we're going in the summertime, we're going to California, and okay. it's a toss up between San Francisco and San Diego. But I think San Diego takes it for just like. God, incredible! <laughs> it's just an incredible, like the weather, I the well, food. Just remind all of us it. the city you're visiting again this summer. Just mm, the two of you. We're going little to city Anaheim, called Anaheim. It's Anaheim. not as beautiful, yeah. I don't think. Yeah. Well, it does. does People Disneyland go there for one count reason. As its own city. It yeah. should, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, by the way, just announced today. Get on it. The Millennium Falcon ride is now officially taking fast passes. Mm-hmm. Fast pass that shit. That's exciting. And get on. I want Jim to wear a vest like yes. Han Solo, <laughs> and I want you to record the whole thing for the Perfect. program. We'll do. Deep thoughts. Okay. If you could live in New York City during any decade in history, when would you want to live there? This is very difficult. Uh, but I, so uh, I think I'm going to go with the 1920s. Just because wow. I think, I mean, and I, like, I'm not living there Good for the choice. whole decade, oh, yeah. right? Like, just like to get to no, get a glimpse of it. I would Absolutely. love to to be there during that time, you know, to, to see the Harlem Renaissance, to feel the, the flapper culture, mm-hmm. like all of it. Jazz, I want to, yes, 1920s. You want it all. I'm in. Love it. I'm Great okay choice. with going to the speakeasies for my alcohol. That's Sounds fine. Good. Yeah, yeah. Getting alcohol. Was I am not, not above bathtub me. gin. No, certainly not. And again, right. that is an interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Next week, Katie's drink will be bathtub gin. Tub she's made. I did <laughs> drink uh, corn whiskey that Gavin Smith one time made in a bathtub. Oh, Does that count? I am amazed that you didn't go blind. <laughs> I was probably already. He so also had dyed it green for St. Patrick's yes, Day. Yes, oh, St. Patrick's God. Day. Not fine memories. Yes, exactly, uh, Karen. Karen. Yes, not fine memories of that. Uh, okay, well, that's our show. Uh, right. Next week, we are into February. Is it really? Uh, and Wait, we're going to really? be in February with our next batch of episodes once oh. this is released. And we will be celebrating the Oscars in February. Oh, that's we're each picking a film that has received an Oscar in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will be starting out with probably one of my hands down favorite films of uh 2018-19 the favorite mm. which i am I'm thrilled so for Katie to, I'm and so Jim excited to see to watch mm-hmm. it. i loved it i was really hopeful that it would have won the oscar last year uh and it did not mm. just like i'm sure the film i want to win the oscar this year once upon a time in hollywood i don't know well, brian it might. might not it might fingers crossed all right uh um, we're gonna watch the black Klansman for me and continue our yes. spike lee study mm. love it Mm-hmm. And Jim, your Oscar choice is going to be uh, what did I say? I totally forget. The Silence now. of the Lambs. Oh, oh Silence yes. of the Lambs. Yeah. Oh, and as it won every Oscar. Yes. As a bonus, February, of course, is Valentine's Day. Yay! Uh, last year, our most controversial episode oh, before God, we did uh, Pretty Woman uh, was The Notebook. This year, I have been inspired to pick a film by Katie for Valentine's Day. We'll be watching about time. Yes. Oh, rewatch. I hope that's okay. I know you guys have seen this movie. This is going to be a great month. Great month. I have not seen it. Uh, Like, share, 
subscribe yeah. uh bring a friend uh yeah. to commagers and keep bring listening because we should be pretty happy for the next four episodes so it'll yeah, it should really be good happy. times <laughs> um and that is all all right all right Goodbye, everybody everyone. Bye. Good night. bye bye